0: If you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know that we're doing this series called Questioning Faith. It's kind of an interesting thing to talk about on a Sunday morning, I think. And it's been a—I asked you last week to be praying because it's been an interesting venture for us. But you know what? I think you've been praying because God has clearly shown up and shown us the way I appreciate your faithful prayers, that the work that be preached boldly as it should, that we could discern it rightly as God desires. And not just up here, but I'm talking in family groups that are meeting right now. We're having these small group gatherings in people's homes where we get even deeper into the material, I would encourage you to be praying for our family group leaders that they would lead as God would have them to lead, that we could know him more fully, that we could proclaim him more boldly, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ that we're called to proclaim. So I want to remind you, if you weren't here for the first two weeks, what we talked about, and I, I want you to see that we're kind of building, we're building these kind of conversations of faith. I hope in your life you're, you're talking to others about your faith life. Like, if it's in you, if God has moved in your heart, if he has drawn you toward him, I would say you can't help but share it with others. Even if it's sharing questions, sharing concerns, sharing disappointments that you've seen in the people of God, whatever it is, you should be talking about the people of God and what he desires. His word says that he puts his spirit in us, and it teaches us from the inside. It changes us from the inside out, that God changes us inside out and so the first week we talked about is there a god a god is there one god who is making himself known right and the second week we asked the question is the bible true and those two things are kind of fundamental building blocks to your faith if you haven't worked those things out yet you'll be constantly sketching on everything else you'll be thinking i don't know if i can trust this or i don't know if this is even real and there'll be this constant kind of waffling in your faith life I've heard the story, I'm sure you've heard it before if you've been around the church for a while, about Billy Graham, who has become, of course, a really well-known evangelist. You may have heard of him before. He's talked about Jesus a few times to a couple of people, and he's kind of effective at it, right? But a long time ago when he was studying to go into ministry, he was having a crisis of faith, he says, and so was his roommate. And in this conversation, in this crisis of faith, he's talking, and he says, him and his roommate made different decisions. His roommate decided that I just can't trust it and, and walked away. And and Billy Graham says, in that moment, that defining moment, I just decided to trust Jesus, to believe him fully for everything. And God has used him to reach many, many people for the glory of God. And and, and that's kind of what we're talking about when we discuss faith matters. You're going to come to this place where we're going to decide Do we believe there's a God? Do we believe the Bible is true? And if you don't make these fundamental decisions early, you'll be waffling all the time. Well, this week, we're going to get into the meat of it. I do want you to know, some people have asked me, hey, I didn't get to join a family group. Can I still join? Yes. We are taking people at any point in this journey. If you've been kind of waiting to see how it develops, jump into a family group. They're really good. They're offered every night of the week, except for Friday nights and Saturday nights. And there's even one Sunday morning here before services. So it's Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, and Thursday night in different people's homes, different leaders and they've been very um, powerful so if you want to get involved you can talk to me you're one of the family group leaders one of the leadership team members and we can direct you to the, the right group steve Hamps actually in the front here can help you with that as well so be sure to jump into one of our family groups and and this week we're going to talk ask this question right here so what is so special about jesus I mean, what is so special about Jesus? A while back, I was praying about what's unique about the Christian church. What, what is our claim to fame? What is the thing that we're supposed to rally around the center of all of our ministry? And it hit me, and you'll be like, well, I'm glad you figured that out. But it's Jesus. I mean, it really is Jesus. That's what's unique. There's a lot of religions, but Jesus is the fundamental reality of being a Christian. People who, who, who claim that they are Christians and, and don't have claims about Jesus— I don't know what they mean. It's a non-starter. And so this week, we're going to work from the gospel of Mark. We have a few things to do, and so we're going to enter in prayers. we always do. But I want to remind you that we've been talking about, is the Bible true? Well, Mark, the gospel we're going to work from this morning primarily, is the earliest gospel that's written. It's the shortest gospel. It's my favorite gospel because it's the gospel that God used to change my life personally, okay? So I read Mark and God won, you know, praise God. He won. And so I love gospel Mark. But we're going to kind of talk about this question. What's so special about Jesus starting in the gospel of Mark? But before we open the word, I'm going to ask that you would do what we always do is open with prayer. We believe the, the Bible is inspired by God and we believe that you, you can be inspired to understand it. God can help you understand his word. There's no excuse for setting the sidelines in the relationship with God. So join me this morning in prayer. Father God, we've come here into your house to sing praise of your great glory of the angels and seraphim that are bringing you worship all day, every day, since the beginning of time. Father, for the creation that cries out in agony for your redeeming, the creation that cries out the glory of your presence. And Father, today we've come here just to be part of that work. And we pray, is this gift of relationship we have in Jesus that we can come to you and just ask that you would dwell with us today. That even those who feel far from you today, who, who go, I don't belong or I don't get it yet, Father, that, that they would feel your Holy Spirit drawing them to you, pushing and shoving, pulling and tugging, that they might know you, that we might know you better. In this place, we invite you to just have your way with us whatever that is, and that every word, every thought, everything going on in this place we call sanctuary, we call holy, would be for your glory and the good of your people and the honor of your name and your kingdom. May that work happen here by your mercy extended in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're going to work from the gospel of Mark. We have a few things to get through, so I might press ahead a little bit. It's going to be Mark chapter 2. The Gospel of Mark is not the first uh, gospel in the New Testament, but um, it is the earliest. Here we go, the gospel. The the first thing I'm going to kind of talk about is three kind of looks at what makes Jesus so special, okay? And you'll see on your engagement sheet, if you were lucky enough to get one this morning, there are three primary questions that are being asked about Jesus, what's so special about Jesus. And the first is, what did Jesus say was so special about himself? Okay, the gospel accounts are accounts of those who walked with Jesus. They're written accounts of those who spent time with Jesus. And we're going to hear the words that are recorded of what Jesus said about himself, first of all. So read with me, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home come home and so many gathered that there was no room left not even outside the door and he preached the word to them jesus preached the word boy i would i would love to hear that right and some men came bringing him a paralytic carried by four of them and since they couldn't get him to jesus because of the crowd they made an opening in the roof and they lowered him down they dug through it lowered him down because the man was paralyzed Verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic man, son, your sins have been forgiven. There's a gospel you can preach right there. Verse 6, so some of the teachers of the law were sitting there and they thought to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And so he said to them, why do you think these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, take up your mat and walk? Verse 10, but that you might know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And he looked at the paralytic man and he said, I tell you, stand up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, he took his mat, and he walked out in full view of everyone gathered and they were all amazed, and they all praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Now, you've probably heard this story before. We've preached this story before here at Family Bible Church about the faith of these men bringing their friend to Jesus, about how when the word is preached, people are pressing in on every side. There's this urgency. There's this desire. There's this wanting for Jesus himself, nothing but the real thing, and you'll do anything to get it. But today, I want you to see... What Jesus does. We've said this before here. It's striking to me that this is early in the Gospel of Mark. This is one of the earliest Gospels written, and it's early in the book. And the, one of the first things that Jesus sees, the primary need. When you come through the door, when someone comes to Jesus, the primary concern when He sees you, you might have all these ailments or all these concerns in your life, or what's not going right for you, or how things are. And the thing that Jesus sees profoundly, immediately, and before everything else is our sin. Isn't that striking? Then when he sees this paralytic, I don't know what you would think if somebody lowered someone in today, but I would be thinking of all the ways this ain't gonna work out, and what Jesus seen is his sin, and he says, son, listen to the words, daughter, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, not everybody got what happened there. Not everyone understood what he was doing, but some did. You see, what did Jesus say about himself? He automatically goes into savior mode. He automatically goes into forgiver mode. And he makes a claim, I want you to see this, that people don't get to make. This is a culture, a Jewish culture, where people have to sacrifice for the sins, they have to do things, they have to pay, pay penance for their sins. They have to. And what did this man offer on the mat? Nothing. He was before the king. And Jesus automatically says, Your sins are forgiven. It's his first response when you come to him. It's the first response when I come to him. Your sins are forgiven. Well, there's some smart guys in the room and they get it. I mean, they see him and they're like, Wait a minute. And what do they say? Look at the scripture. What does it say? No one can forgive sin except God alone. They know the place that forgiveness lies. They know the one that has a right to call us to account. And they say, Jesus, who are you? Who are you? You see, when Jesus forgave the sins of the paralytic man, when he chose to act in that way, he was equating himself to God. He was. By his function, he was saying. Now, I know this place in Scripture where it says he did not consider himself to be equal with God, but I'm telling you that here in this moment, he, he knows what he's called to do, and he does it. He forgives sins. Well, they challenge this in their hearts. I want you to see how God, how Jesus discerns this. I want you to see what the word says. It says, He discerned in his spirit. I always tell you, walk around with a life of discernment. He discerns in his spirit what's happening in their hearts, and he calls it out on the spot. He says, I know what you're thinking. And then he finishes his lesson. Of what he believes of himself in the gospel of Mark this way. But that you might know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins here on earth. You see, he said a lot of stuff right there about himself. And when he talks about the Son of Man, this is a title. It's an Old Testament reference. To humanity as a whole, but to God's place in humanity, to what God's going to do with His people. But there's something unique about the way the New Testament treats Son of Man. It's always the Son of Man. You see, the Old Testament would kind of make it like the Son of Man or all human. And, and Jesus says that you might know that the Son of Man, talking about Himself, me. Why they accuse Him? You can't forgive sins. That you might know that me, the Son of Man, can forgive sins. I will say this get up, take your mat, and walk. So, not only does Jesus say, I can forgive sins, but through the miracle of healing, and the miracle that you and I would say is greater than any other miracle, he demonstrates his divine power and authority through this work. Everyone was amazed. Look what the word says, and everyone said, "We have never seen anything like this before—a demonstration of God's power." They were all amazed at His work. So, the first thing that we know that Jesus does is He claims this role; He claims this authority of forgiving sins, and He demonstrates His power. Now, this will not be the first or the last time He demonstrates the power that He's been given by God. This is not the the, the last time this happens in Mark or any of the other Gospels. But here he demonstrates it clearly. He links it to his divine authority granted by the Father. The accusation is, Jesus, you can't do this. And Jesus says, oh, I most certainly can. Look with me if you will now. We're going to press ahead to another passage in the, the Gospel of Mark. It's at the, near the end. So just flip back a few pages. Um, I'm trying to make this pretty easy. And we're going to go to um, Mark 14. This is another story about Jesus and what he thought about himself it comes in the in verses 1453 through 64 and this is what the word says by the way this is right after he gets arrested okay so he's he's been he's been betrayed he's been arrested and he's being led before his accusers hear the word 53. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests. I mean, these guys are the top muckety mucks in the organization and the elders and the teachers of the law. And they all came together. Now, those guys who accused him before were all gathered around Jesus. He's brought before them in chains. And Peter follows him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And there he sat with the guards and he warmed himself by the fire. So, Peter's checking this out. Verse 55. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they could not find any evidence. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree with one another. So I want you to see what's happening. They're looking for trouble. They're looking for accusations, and they're getting a lot of them. People are saying, well, this is what's happening, and that's what's happening. But when they tried to put them together, they had this burden of proof. You had to have two or three witnesses to bring an accusation, and they couldn't get any two or three people to agree on what he had done wrong. Everyone had a different story to tell. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree Verse 57, then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. Now listen to this. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days will build another not made by man. That might sound familiar to you because Jesus said something very close to that. Yet even these statements did not agree. Verse 60, then the chief priest, the high priest, stood up before them and he asked Jesus, are you not going to answer What is the testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. I want you to think about this just for a second. You've been wrongly accused. You're in the garden praying. You're you're teaching. You're asking disciples, just pray with me. Just be faithful and pray with me. And then you're betrayed by one of your own, and you're let off in chains. And you're standing before these men who've been looking to accuse you for so long, and they're just drumming up charges, and everyone's saying different things. And you know what Jesus is doing? He's saying... Nothing. I don't know how, if, you know, I would be, refute that one, refute this one, do that, brr, gee, you know, defense, I'd have my lawyers, I'd be all, you know, lawyered up, and Jesus is standing there, and he's defenseless against their false accusations. He makes no attempt to the point that the high priest stops everything and goes, aren't you even gonna say anything? Do you have nothing to say about these charges? And Matthew, or Mark here, records with Peter present that Jesus was silent and answered, nothing. That's significant, because look what happens next. The high priest had heard the accusations, and the major accusation he had heard, he confronts Jesus with directly, and he says this, Are you the Christ, that is, Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus' response is, I am and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The question that he chooses to answer is this. Are you the Christ, the one that's been promised? And Jesus says, I am him. He claims that before everyone. He, he knew they would be completely offended completely offended. As a matter of fact, look in verse 63 at their response to this. It says, the high priest then tore his clothes and says, why do we need any more witnesses against him? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think of it? Because this was the thing that they were accusing him of the whole time. It's like they get, their, they get their, uh, the, the criminal on the stand, and nothing is sticking to him, and the one thing they want to stick, he actually proclaims himself. He confesses. And he says, I am he. I am the son of the blessed one. It's interesting too here that the word says the blessed one. It's always used in reference to God. God was the only one worthy of praise. The only one to be adored. Have you ever thought about when we say that? And, oh, that's adorable. You know, the scripture says that only God is adorable. It's adorable. When we worship him, it's right pure. That's what we're called to do. And he says, are you claiming to be the son of the only one worthy of worship, the Messiah, the Christ? And Jesus says, yeah, I am. That's me every other accusation he could have so readily refuted he did not but this one that he could have had his chance to say you know i'm not i know what you're going to do how you feel about this but he doesn't he claims it explicitly he he makes no attempt to dodge that question he wants everyone there to know what he's saying about himself he's not afraid i asked this this morning because this is significant When you say, what's so special about Jesus? You have to start with what Jesus says about himself. There's been some great work done on this now because this is written in the Bible that we preach here at Family Bible Church and that many of you read and believe. And when Jesus says here that he is the Christ, he is self-proclaiming his fulfillment of the messianic prophecies in the First Testament and he knows it. He knows before it happens that chief priest is going to tear his clothes and say, this is blasphemy against God. No one can claim the Messiahship unless they're Messiah. And we don't believe that he is. What do you think is the question that he ends with? What do you think of this claim? In modern times, when we ask the question, what's so special about Jesus? Some very smart people have worked this out to say a few things. You and I can believe Jesus is who he says he is. He's the Messiah. That means that our job is to know what that means, his fulfillment of scripture. Our job is to know what it means that he's Lord of our life. You and I can decide to think that Jesus was delusional, crazy, right? Right? There's people who've said, well, that's not possible, but I want to remind you that in the Gospels, it's recorded that Mary and his brothers went to get him at one of his worship services where he's praising and preaching the word to bring him home because they thought he had lost his mind. So you believe Jesus is crazy, delusional, when he says these things. And the other option would be that he is lying, that he's standing before the holy God of the universe, what he certainly believed was real, that he's standing before these chief priests, these rulers, these elders, these, these judges, and he's saying, I am proclaiming this, and he's willfully lying to their face. But the problem with this is that you know that that's his accusation against everyone else who's not of God. You're a liar. You don't know me because you don't know the truth. You don't know the Father. And so we can choose this option. It's been said well this way. This is a way to memorize this. You can say that Jesus is a liar, a lunatic, or our Lord, but he gives us very few options. In his own witness to us, in the gospel accounts, they don't let us treat Jesus however we want. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors. i want to read you a quote from his book, Mere Christianity. He sums this up well. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus Christ. That I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I will not accept him to be God. That is the one thing that we must never say, Lewis writes. A man who said that sort of things that Jesus uh, said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic on a level of a man who has said he is a poached egg, wholly different. Or else he would have to be the very devil from hell, lying before God. So then you make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something far worse. You can shut Jesus up as a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him your Lord and your God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher, because he has not left that open to us. In fact, he was very intentional to not do so. Jesus Himself did not make this option available to us, and today we treat Him so carelessly. Well, the next question that I want to ask this morning, and we're going to still work from Mark here, is uh, this question: What did the first disciples think? Turn with back in the Gospel of Mark with me to the eighth chapter, Mark eight verses 27 through 30 you've heard this before too i guarantee you but i want you to see that what those who walk with jesus said about jesus and again this is from the gospel of mark chapter 8 verses 27 through 30 jesus and his disciples went on to the village around caesarea philippi and on the way he asked them who do people say that i am he's walking with his disciples and then the disciples replied and said some say john the baptist and others say elijah and still others one of the prophets those are some pretty good credentials, you know. If you want to be blamed of being somebody, you know, you could be Elijah. You could be uh, John the Baptist. You know, he's been beheaded. You could uh, be a prophet. But Jesus isn't satisfied with any of these titles that people are claiming about him. And he looks at those who have been walking with him. I want you to see it. And he asks them, but what about you? See, I told you earlier that we have to come to terms with this. What about you? Who do you say that I am? This is the place we love, Peter. Because, man, Peter gets it right. I mean, the Peter that gets so many things wrong in his life, like in this moment of decisiveness, he's there with all the other disciples. He's following Jesus. And in this moment, he steps forward and he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Don't tell anyone else what you know of me. He doesn't say, No, no, Peter, not the Christ. Remember John the Baptist. I'm not the one that's coming. There's one that's coming after me. You remember Paul tearing his clothes and saying, I am not God, Jesus is. But here Jesus is like, don't tell anyone yet. But Peter, what a great moment for Peter. You are the Messiah. You're not a prophet. You're not Elijah. You're not John the Baptist. You're the promised king. Peter believed Believed that he was. And Jesus here does not rebuke him. You know, and Jesus had no problem rebuking Peter. But here he doesn't. It's like, yeah, I'm the Christ. Wow. I mean, that's a moment in your walk with Jesus that you'll never forget. When you realize that he's not just, you know, he, he's the promised king. He's everything. He's God incarnate. He is the picture, the perfect demonstration of God's love for us. We sang songs about this morning. Did you hear it? He humbled himself and came to us to save us. He died on the cross to forgive our sins. He was raised to testify about his godly descent. And he walks among us. I mean, it's a beautiful reality. And when we realize, when we recognize him for who he is, it takes all these other other silly titles off the table and he is christ he's our lord not just our lord he's the king of the universe he's god incarnate well so here peter says that about him i want to show you one other disciple this morning and we're going to actually press ahead to the book of Acts. It comes right after the Gospels, the Gospel of John. By the way, John 8 has some great stuff in it about um, Jesus' testimony about himself. And I just want to mention that to you. You can look that up later. We don't have time for it this morning. But Acts chapter 6, I want to introduce you to this guy named Philip. Now, you see, Philip is interesting because Philip comes after the ascension of Jesus and the start of the church, and that's kind of where we are in your life. This is the reality that we have in Christ, is that we weren't there walking with him, but we can know him intimately. And I want to read with you verses 6, 1 through 7 quickly, and then we're going to jump into a story about Philip, and we're going to wrap up actually with some prophecy. So check this out. It says, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the church is growing numerically, the Grecian Jews among them complained about the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in daily distribution of food. Okay, so here's one you to see. First of all, is it like in the church, right away, there's trouble. You know what I mean? And what you see here is that the gospel is being preached to all nations and that the Hebraic Jews are offended because, or the Grecian Jews are offended because not being cared for properly. Okay, and, and they're trying to figure out how to do this thing called, you know, following Jesus together. We call it the church. And so this is what it says in verse 2. So the 12... You know, apostles gathered together, all the disciples, and said. Now, I want you to see something real quick. The 12 gathered together all the disciples. So, I mean, there's this kind of calling in of, hey, you guys who are following Jesus, come in here. We're going to talk about this. Okay? And they said this. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God. That means proclaiming the gospel in order to wait tables to serve. It's great to serve, but we are called to preach, and we need some people who are willing to serve. Verse 3, brothers, choose seven men from among yourselves who are known to be, listen, full of the Spirit and wisdom. You know the Holy Spirit gives wisdom. Do you know that's true? And it's a qualification for all leaders in the church to know the wisdom of God through the Spirit of God. And he says here, they are full of the Spirit and wisdom. So we will turn this responsibility over to them, waiting tables, and we'll give our attention to prayer and ministry of the word, praying and preaching the word. Verse 5, this proposal pleased the whole congregation, and so they chose amongst them Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Man, what a great leader Stephen is. Philip, there he is, our man Philip. Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Paraminas, uh, nicholas from antioch a convert to judaism and they presented these men to the apostles who prayed over them laid hands on them and then the word of god spread and the number of disciples in jerusalem increased rapidly and listen to this and even a large number of priests became obedient to the faith those would be in the priests that were there ruling over jesus saying you aren't the christ right i mean the church got to preach to the priests that's kind of cool. And so the church grows in this way. That's brother Philip. Now look ahead with me in verse or in chapter eight. This is where we're gonna get into the meat of the story about Philip. Eight chapter one. I wanna or eight verse one it says um one and a half. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Okay, so I want you to see what's happened here. They've got this big thing going in Jesus' name. They're Christians. They're being made fun of for this, and they're gathering together, and they're preaching the word of God, that Jesus is the Christ. And they've appointed these men as leaders in the church, but then what happens is they start to get some opposition, and Stephen, the man full of faith and wisdom, is martyred. He dies for his faith in Jesus. And upon his death, it says that the disciples are scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. So the the 12 apostles stay, but everyone else is like, you know what I mean? They've just been flipped out into the wind. They're just going, you know? And times of persecution come, and you might think, oh, Lord, what are you doing? But here God knows exactly what he's doing amongst his people. So looking ahead now to verse 26, because this is Philip. He gets shook out of the home turf and sent out into the world. An angel of the Lord came to Philip, Go south on the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to, G- to Gaza. And so he started out on his way and he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of the treasury of Candace, queen of Ethiopians, okay? This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. This is a long journey, by the way. And on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. And the spirit told philip go to that chariot and stay near it a couple things have happened philip has been sent out of his his place as a table waiter he was a server he was serving in the church right he'd been appointed but he was sent out amongst the people and god's spirit starts telling him to go here and do this and go there and do that later on you'll find in the end of the book of acts they call philip the evangelist that's cool i mean is that cool to you guys you could be sitting here this morning, you're like halfway, you're like, um, oh, church again. You know what I mean? You're sleeping, and God's like, in a minute, I'm going to shake this tablecloth, and you're going to whip out that door, and you're going to preach my word to the farthest people on this planet. What? I, 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 Why do I do that? God says, I'm going to guide you by my spirit. Check out what he does. He goes, go to this guy, stand by his chariot, and wait. Philip, man, I love Philip. You know what he does? Whatever God tells him to do. Like, do you love that? I don't know what to do next. Talk to God about it. God's like, go over there and do that. That's going to be weird. Go stand by the chariot. That's going to be weird. You just go to like, you know, you're waiting. Tell you a little about this Ethiopian guy. This guy traveled uh, to Jerusalem for worship. I, I've looked this up. I, I had to know how far did he drive. Some of you came pretty far, you know. Some of you guys are a long way from home. It was between 1,500 and 2,000 miles by chariot. This dude went a long way. He was desiring God. He went to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh, the God who is. And on the way back, God's spirit tells Philip, go, stand by that chariot and wait. All right, picking it up with me now. So verse 30. So Philip ran to the chariot. I told you he was obedient. And he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah is a First Testament, Old Testament book, right? Do you, and he asked this question of the guy in the chariot. Do you understand what you're reading? This man in all humility says, how can I? Unless well, someone explains it to me. And so he invited Philip to come up and sit with him in the chariot. And the eunuch was reading this passage of scripture He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before his shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. I want you to see how many things that God's working on here once. If you don't think we follow a holy God who's doing far more than we can ever imagine, not only does he shake these disciples out of Jerusalem and send them into Judea and Samaria, but he's given them commands go here, do this. And he's got this eunuch from Ethiopia who's traveled a couple thousand miles, stopped on the side of the road, and looking at Scripture and saying, What does this mean? And here, Philip, this humble servant, gets to step up in the chariot and explain the Scriptures. Tell me, please, the eunuch says, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And here is Philip's claim to fame. Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture, and he told him the good news about Jesus. Philip didn't wait, you know, for the new testament to be written down so he could you know gospel john three sixteen, that guy <laughs> Do you know what i mean like philip wasn't like okay if i have my study notes here today like he started right where that guy was and he's like i can explain the messiah from here and he began to share with this eunuch the gospel of jesus christ well you know the rest of the story i love this as they traveled along the road right it means that Philip rode in the chariot for a while with this guy, and they see water, and he says, why can't I be baptized? And Philip says, that's a great question. Why can't you be? And he does. And Philip makes a disciple on the side of the road, someone who is seeking God earnestly. The last, so, so I want you to see that Peter believed that Jesus was the Christ. I want you to see that Philip and the church scatter believe that Jesus was the Christ. What's so special about Jesus? Philip would say, everything is special about Jesus. You have questions? I can help. And with God's guidance, he was able to teach Scripture rightly. When we enter into the Word, whether we're proclaiming it, whether we're teaching it, whether we're reading it, we enter asking God to be present in it. And here he does it. Check it out. I want to do one last Scripture. It's going to come in the book of Isaiah. And... Uh, It's going to answer this question. So, what did the scriptures predict about the Messiah? It's Isaiah. It's going to be found in the First Testament, Isaiah 53. There is so much here, but I'm going to do this morning what Philip must, could have done. I mean, not saying I know, you know, but he could have done these things as he began to preach the gospel. And so I want you to start because I would invite you when you go into your small groups or whenever you go home tonight and you sit down, or maybe right now if you're bored with what I'm saying, just start to read Isaiah 52 and 53. Start to read. These books were written a long time before Jesus showed up. And they proclaim this coming promise. You may have already heard it, whenever Isaiah was read by the Ethiopian, he says, "He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth." We heard that from the gospel today. By oppression that means arrest and judgment, he was taken away, And who can speak of his descendants?" And this is where he said, "Who is he speaking of?" And Philip is like, "I know. it's Jesus. Read with me in verse seven, or verse nine, eight and a half we'll get there for he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people he was stricken that means that the Messiah was going to die he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death though he had done no violence and there was no deceit found in his mouth you remember what the accusation was this man is blaspheming he's lying about God the Messiah gave no lie. He had done no violence. Verse 10, yet it was Yahweh's will to crush him. It was Yahweh's will to cause him to suffer. And though, the, though Yahweh makes his life, and, and though the Lord, Yahweh, makes his life a guilt offering, that means a sacrifice for sin, He will see his offspring. And he will prolong his days. And he, the will of the Lord, will prosper in his hand. I just told you the Messiah is going to die. Something else of interest is when Jesus is on the cross and he's being ridiculed by those who have crucified him. He's being mocked because God don't die on the cross. He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you think, why does he say that? He's remembering scripture and the promise of Messiah, the promise of the price, the promise of the plan. And Jesus on the cross knows it more than anyone, why he is dying for all of us. It was God's will to crush him. But look what it says, he will prosper verse 11 after the suffering of a soul he will see the light of life and he will be satisfied in front of his enemies that's so cool and by his knowledge my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities that's their sins and therefore i will give him a portion among the great and he will divide up the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and he was found among transgressors because he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for those who sin. Isaiah says, this, this one, greater than all the prophets, that's going to do something that no one could do is forgive sin, is Jesus. And Isaiah starts right there, and he says, you too, eunuch. You too, person your chariot. You too, person who's seeking God and wondering, is this for me? He says, not only is it for you, it's the only thing for you. Jesus, God, son of man, son of God, dead on a cross for our sins. And and, and that's our salvation story. There's nothing else. God's own son sacrificed for you and for me. So where does that leave us? You know what's crazy? Is that leaves us exactly where it left those disciples when they're standing with Jesus. And he's looking at them and he's like, do you see what the prophets have foretold? Do you see... What I've done on the cross? Do you see who I am? Well, what do you say? Who am I? And the Spirit of God in us draws us toward a conclusion that He's the Christ, the Son of the living God, and our only hope for redemption. If today you don't know this reality, I pray that by God's grace He would move you toward it. I pray that this, this doubt, these things that hinder you from proclaiming the gospel as you should would be removed by his Spirit's power and that we could be fully his, knowing him, believing him, and claiming him as Christ and Lord Jesus. The question stands. I love that. He still says, though, what do you say? Who do you say that I am? Please join me in prayer. Father, this morning we admit to you that we come from so many places and we have so many experiences and we can't possibly manufacture things that would bring about your glory on our own. And yet, just like that Ethiopian in the chariot who had gone to worship not knowing exactly why, just like Philip who had been persecuted and sent out not knowing exactly why, you know what you're doing amongst your people. And today, all we ask is that by your grace and mercy, we can be part of it. If your call today is that a sinner comes to repentance and receive for the first time the realization of of a, a God who loves him so much that he would die, that he would give his son, I pray that that work would happen, but only for your glory. Those those of us who know you and we've been playing with the following Jesus thing and we think he's kind of smart and we think the Bible's kind of cool, but we've not really sold out and said he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father any other way and that the only hope I have for forgiveness, for, for redemption, for sanctification, for purification is found in him and following him. I pray we would have the courage in your spirit to return. And for everyone who's here, I pray that we'd be drawn nearer, that those of us who've been sitting on the sidelines watching life would jump in and start to respond to the call of your spirit to proclaim the gospel boldly. For everything, we give you thanks and praise. You are so good to us, and we don't deserve any of it. We don't deserve any of it, not your wisdom, not your knowledge, not your spirit, and certainly not your son. So we give you thanks with all of creation, for your redeeming. May your work be done in your name and for your glory this morning. We pray this offering of thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.